Now, I will say in America, America has severe metabolic health problems. And America is one of the worst affected countries. So in America right now, in excess mortality, the only measure you can use, it's probably around 1,300 people per million. So 0.13% after multiple seasons and over a year. So it's pretty high. And many countries, half of Europe is down at only 100 per million or around 0.01. So there are big differences between countries. But the key point is, it's not because you lock down or you masked or not. It's the metabolic health of your population, the age profile of your population, the genetics of your population. All the factors that decide how hard you get hit by this virus are not to do with lockdowns. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. And today I'm doing video. You know what? We have 60,000 viewers on YouTube and I am going to go jeopardize yet another of my platforms. I haven't put any videos out on YouTube and I'm going to just start putting all this great content about the scandemic out there on YouTube. Well, today I have um, a very exciting guest because he is one of the more uh, censored people on the internet as well. This is Ivor Cummings. Welcome. Hey, great to be here. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, Ivor is known as um, the Fat Emperor. I don't know why, because you're not fat, but, and he's been doing a lot of content and he is a biochemist and has been doing a lot of data analysis. And um, first of all, just thank you for speaking up. Thank you for speaking up about this subject. I know it's really punishing to do so, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very adverse environment since what, April 2020, everything went nuts. But uh, no, thanks, Robin. I, I do it primarily. I always say my motivations are quite simple, actually. Um, I have five children, so I've always been future focused for the future of the children. And I see what's happening now is going to ruin our freedoms and our future for them. So that really makes me angry. And the other thing is I've always stood for truth and science and data. It's my thing my whole life, my whole career. Uh, I just don't tolerate when the technical truth is twisted for political ends. And by God, we've seen that in the last year, right? <laughs> we have. And that's honestly why I put my career at stake and lots of people unsubscribed. I've been a full-time influencer for 15 years now. And um, that's why for me too, I'm a mother of five. And, and um, I can see that my children aren't going to fight for this because they haven't spent a lifetime um sifting through whether what the media tells us and what the government tells us is true or not. So they're still young enough that they believe everything they're told. So you and I, we have to, we have to do the fight for them. I think. How about your kids? Are they all awake? Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, I have probably 23 years old down to around 13. Uh, the younger ones are less focused on it, but they're fully aware. And they often make comments coming in, shaking their heads, saying, hey, there were a lot of people wearing masks today on bikes and just laughing at it because it's so absurd. So, yeah, they get it. And my eldest daughter is a medical student. So she got it from the start herself, pretty much, was questioning me on the figures back in March and April. And I filled her in because I'm 
heavy into the research on this daily. So I filled her in the data, but she already worked it out herself. What's happening is they're turning the world upside down for effectively a severe flu season equivalent. It's maybe twice as bad as a really nasty flu. That's it. But look what we've done. Yeah, I I started having a lot to say about this starting on February 27th of last year. And for some reason, I knew that 15 days to flatten the curve was a lie before before they even started the 15 days. But yeah. I'm I'm a little bit jealous that your kids are younger because I have some regrets. And you're having those conversations with your kids that I don't have the opportunity to have because they were all adults when this happened. But you know what? I did not vaccinate my children growing up. And when they were growing up and I did not even tell their father who I was married to for 20 years, I did not even tell their father that I wasn't getting them the vaccinations. So I, w- I had enough foresight to do that because, you know, the I, I think I sort of learned that lesson by, you know, like telling a friend or two and got such a violent reaction from people that I learned this is this, this whole thing could literally get me banned from family events. And so and so here we are, but I, I was not talking to my children about why I didn't give them vaccines because I made that decision. When they're very young and their oldest brother is very vaccine injured. He and I were injured by a vaccine. I had to get, um, I had to get the flu vaccine, uh, for a graduate school internship that I had to do. And, um, that's where my journey started studying all this stuff. And so I think cause I'd already gone way down this rabbit hole. The lies we were being told by the government and the media were really, really obvious to me, like right out of the gate. And in fact, for some reason, I've been able to see what their big play is with each thing they do. I mean, they just they do some things that surprise me. But um, when when did you wake up and what were some of the early signs for you that that made you say, I got to start ringing a warning bell via, via Paul Revere? I don't know if you guys in Ireland know who Paul Revere is, but you are a Paul Revere. And he was a great American hero. And right now, all the Paul Revere's are being mostly reviled in America. He was the guy who, you know who he was? Uh, I've heard the name and I vaguely remember, yeah, he was a hero. And a bit like the abolitionists or any of the early kind of leadership people. Uh, it's a tough road. Yeah, he was He was like running through the small towns in the middle of the night saying the British are coming, the British are coming. And he was waking people up and they they didn't really want to wake up. And they, of course, don't want the British attacking them either. But it's not it's not really fun to ride through the town in the middle of the night and try to wake the sleeping people up. But so what what did you see early on? Like how or did you wake up months later? It's almost really inspiring to me that if people wake up later, you know, we had we had a meeting in Park City, Utah, which is where we lived. We've run to the free state of Florida. We've literally fled Utah now, but. Um, we have a, we have freedom groups all over Utah, and I started that whole thing under Dr. Pam Popper's uh, idea. She's from Ohio, but I interviewed her, and I love the idea so much that I've spent the last like five months organizing groups all over Utah, so that Utah can really organize and and stand up um, to it. But we just uh, this week met with our uh, with our sheriff. I'm not there. I'm here in Florida, but we met with our sheriff. We, we keep, we keep our elected and unelected officials honest. Uh, but we've had, we've had so many crazy things happen in Utah and it's become very clear to me. Um, so we had this group and, 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 and we had everybody go around when I was in Utah a month ago. We had everybody go around and say, what month did you wake up and what woke you up? And it was very inspiring to me to find that not everybody 
you know, like we, we there, like there's still people we can wake up, you know, not everybody is so brainwashed. There are people who are waking, who are waking up three months ago and five months ago and all that. So what was it for you? Yeah, well, for me, it was kind of easier in a way because I've been 25 years plus in complex problem solving, you know, running and leading large teams in the corporate sphere, uh, multi-factor interacting problems, really heavy stuff. That was my specialty. So I'm top of my field in that. And I spent the last seven or eight years in the metabolic space. So type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, you know, low-carb diets, and keto, uh, and heavy, heavy metabolism. Uh, and understanding chronic disease root causes, which is mostly dietary, as, as you well know. And uh, I was just perfectly placed when this came along. I hadn't specialized in immunology, but I was huge in epidemiology, right? And uh, when it came along, I just looked at it and I dug a little. It was almost casual. And I saw the Diamond Princess data uh, for that cruise ship. And I looked at the numbers. I'm a numbers guy, 3,750 people. Uh, 2,100 staff, uh, how many died? Seven, da, 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 da. Okay, this is going to be like a severe flu. And the beauty of the Diamond Princess was they were all on what I called a Petri ship. It was literally an incubation vessel, shared, uh, you know, air conditioning, a uh, lot of elderly people on it. So that showed up the elderly signal, like it's an eight-year-old's disease generally. And you got the numbers. And the fatality rates you could see are like a severe flu, nothing like the Spanish flu. So I kind of knew that from the Diamond Princess and a couple of French ships as well with younger people. And the Chinese data came out and they showed you're 10 times higher risk for mortality if you have COPD, advanced heart disease, age. So, I mean, the thing was screaming. It's going to be an old person's and, and immunocompromised person's disease, mostly in terms of passing from it. And I knew the figures. So I was telling my wife who was getting masks and everything, I was saying, what are you doing that for? I said, it's not going to touch our family. And uh, just the old people will have to be careful to stay out of the way as we go through the seasonal surge, you know, and she said, are you sure? But she knows I'm going to be right on the technical stuff in fairness. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. There's no question. And I was right. But then the end of March, everything went weird. So I was in Denver at a conference speaking, big conference, and uh, next minute everything went crazy. They were locking down. Trump said, we're shutting down travel. At home, they were shutting the airport. And I knew what I just told you. And I said, what's going on? <laughs> but Italy had had a problem, which they do many years. Northern Italy is the black spot for vitamin D in Europe. They have a lot of aged. They have a serious problem with hospital system capacity. They've had awful flu years before, but now suddenly there were pictures all over the internet and everyone went crazy. So, so I kind of knew from the start, but to your point, uh, I'll have to say there's endless people in my network who have woken up uh, only last summer. People who criticized me in April, low carb yeah. people in the network who are now apologizing. And I, look, yeah. I don't want to say I told you so, but I knew this thing is nuts. Yeah, me too. Lots of people who were making fun of me, unsubscribing. They resubscribed. They've apologized. I don't need them to apologize and had to let go a long time ago. I'm sure you did too of what, of what people think. It's, it's none of my business what they think and they're going to have their own process. But you mentioned vitamin D or as you guys in the, in Europe and, and uh, Scandinavia say vitamin D. Um, 
What do you have to say to Dr. Tony Fauci, who uh, years ago was quoted in multiple news outlets as the fact that he takes vitamin D every day? What do you have to say to him or about him be- in, in, in the sense that he has not said one single word about vitamin D to the American people about this whole, through this whole thing, 14 months now? Well, Fauci, to be honest, to me, he's a parody. He's a caricature of, of kind of an evil corporate shell. Um, I mean, it's just, I don't even have the words for what he's been coming out with. He's been coming out with such unscientific nonsense over the last eight or nine, 10 months. It, it's just bizarre to watch. And of course, he has an agenda. I mean, that's plain as the nose in yourself. I was a people manager for 15 years in corporate. You know, we did a lot of shady programs and uh, that's just the way it is. So I, I can read someone trivially easily, especially when I know all the technical reality, the scientific truths, and I watch someone like him. So almost, how do you know when he lies? His lips are moving. It's a cliche, but it's almost like that. Uh, he's suppressed all the potentially beneficial treatments. He has hyped this thing to the sky, uh, the mask madness, uh, you know, the lockdown, supporting the lockdowns and claiming they're really effective. Every single thing he said has been shillery. And the vitamin D, I'm not mentioning it, is just, it's almost a given. You know, he's going to say all the stuff that's not true that drives the madness because it suits his agenda. And he's not going to say any of the stuff that could help with the problem because that also suits his agenda. He wants the problem to be as impactful as possible, as much death porn as possible, as much ICU action as possible. I mean, it's clear he doesn't care about the people. He pretends to care. He talks about our elders. He couldn't care less. It's clear as day. But sadly, most of the lay people watching him, they say, come on. I mean, you're not telling me he doesn't give a hoot about the people dying and sick and he's only pushing an agenda. Well, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I said on Facebook this week that um, listening to anything that Tony Fauci says is like taking your car to a mechanic who went to mechanic school 50 years ago and hasn't touched a car since because he hasn't treated any patients in half of a century since he got out of medical school. And he's done no science either. He's been running organizations. He's completely a bureaucrat. And yeah, so yeah, in terms of being a shill, I've never seen anything like it. It's getting completely ridiculous, like you said. And you don't even have to be paying that much attention. Matthew McConaughey, who is a big American uh, actor, if you don't if you don't know him, he interviewed oh, Fauci because you know right now they're getting all the... Um, they're spending a couple billion dollars of Americans' money. Not that we, not that we have some treasure chest somewhere to pay for stuff like this, but you know the money that they print and put us on the hook for, for generations. Uh, they're getting all the they're getting all the celebrities to twist our arm to get us to get the jab. And um, he did an interview with Matthew McConaughey where McConaughey did a rapid round of yes no questions, and he asked. Fauci, are there long-term effects of this vaccine? Now, I've been studying vaccines for 27 years since my injury and my son's injury. Um, And there isn't a vaccine on the market that doesn't have a list of autoimmune diseases and cancers that are linked to it that are in the insert 
that nobody reads. And most of the doctors couldn't even tell you like five of those diseases that are linked to those uh, because nobody asks them and everybody just assumes they're safe and effective. Therefore they aren't causing diseases. But um, Fauci's answer was because he was given yes or no and was a big smile on his face because he's being lobbed softballs like Fauci loves softballs. He literally said no. That was his whole answer. It wasn't it wasn't qualified in any way. He literally said, no, there are no long term effects of the of the vaccine. I mean, no. what do you have to well, say about that? I know you're deep in immunology and all that stuff. You don't really like to get into the vaccine stuff, do you? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, Robin, I, I don't really get into the vaccine stuff. I've looked at it with some interest on and off over the years as I was focusing on the cholesterol and fat and statin and other drug wars, you know, questioning data on the effectiveness of statin. So I've been involved, but I kind of avoided it because it was a weaponized word, uh, anti-vax. Even if you wanted to discuss the effectiveness or the potential autoimmune triggering problems, which are documented, they're common knowledge. Uh, the only question is how prevalent are they or what percentage, but they're a fact. Uh, I just found you had this accusation of anti-vax. So I realized they don't like you talking about statin effectiveness, but they don't call you kind of names like that. So I realized that vaccines... Huh? <clears throat> like anti-statin? Oh, yeah. Well, they do say it, but it's not weaponized and most people don't care. What yeah. they've done, I noticed over decades, is they've created a true weapon of the word anti-vax. So anyone who even wants to discuss effectiveness, percentages, numbers, they're automatically some kind of terrible person. So I said, wow. And then I figured years ago, and I think I'm still correct, it occurred to me as a corporate guy, and I, I've run programs, mainly technical management, but also the financial management. So I said to myself, well, actually, vaccines are the kind of drugs that kind of everyone gets. So that means they're mega money. And maybe that's why there's so much focus on the anti-vax term, because there's so much money involved. So that was just what I assumed. And I think it was correct. And I think we're seeing now as well, uh, the money is enormous. But I would say people who are pushing a vaccine and claiming it has zero effect, negative effect, is, is absurd. So they would be vaccine zealots or vaccine extremists. So I would turn the argument around and say, well, if I discuss vaccine effectiveness, I discuss percentages of uh, lives saved. I'm not anti-vax. I'm a realist, a vaccine realist, if you will. Uh, and you guys who are screeching at me, you're vaccine extremists. And that, that's the way I honestly view it. Now, there are true anti-vax people who screech and exaggerate harms. And there are the vaccine extremists that screech. There's no harm. And it's amazing. And it's saving everyone. So there's a spectrum. Uh, I'm always dead in the middle. I'm a realist. So, you know, we had the vaccines, the family, but to be honest, my wife mainly looked after that and just went through the normal protocols. But in Ireland, there's only a handful. I believe in America, there's kids get just incredible numbers, but in Ireland, 70, not so much. 72. I mean, it could be a little bit more than that. It depends on whether you get the flu vaccine, which has never been mandated. It was mandated last year by Massachusetts. And then this year they got rid of that. Like you couldn't even go to school without the flu vaccine. This past Ooh. year, and the, the parents were were marching, but but literally, it's seventy two jabs in childhood for our children. Yeah, 
Well, in terms of autoimmunity, so we know anything that triggers the immune system um, in a powerful way, and, and, and vaccines have to be designed to be powerful. My daughter is a med student. She had to get the hep B one, I think, three times to generate a response, enough response. So they're designed to get a big response. And anything that does that, a small percentage of people are going to develop a problem around it, depending on which particular medication. No medication will work unless it can also cause negative effects. It's kind of a definition of a medication. If it can never cause negative effects, it actually isn't going to cause positive ones, right? Yeah. So they have to be realistic and they do have the databases to record negative effects, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think anyone bothers filling them in much. And tying cause and effect is nearly impossible in many cases. So, I mean, I, a few years ago, went to China, to Shenzhen, and I had to get a couple of uh, vaccines. They're probably yellow fever or something. And I just walked down the dock and just got them. I didn't even ask what they were. So I'm kind of like that. I, If I had an autoimmune tendency or arthritic problems or lupus or a history of, you know, Crohn's disease or, you know, uh, celiac, I would be very concerned about deeply researching anything I was going to take. Uh, as it happens, I don't, and it, I, I don't worry about them at all. But my wife in the swine flu, I'll give you an example of where I was in vaccines in 2009. Uh, the swine flu uh, fiasco started. And I remember looking and thinking, wow, this looks like a bad one. People are dying in Mexico. And very quickly, I just looked at the facts. And the people who were dying were kind of drug addicts and stuff and other people with issues. And I realized, hold on a minute, no average normal people are dying roughly. And that's the way it turned out. Very few people died. Um, but the vaccine came out and everyone was talking about the vaccine. And I thought, I honestly thought, naively, I thought, why are they all going on about a vaccine when it's just like a flu? I mean, I just couldn't understand. And my wife went down with all the kids and got them vaccinated because her mother was a nurse. She's, oh my God, you've got to get the vaccine. And I remember she said, oh, you're coming down to the vaccine center. And I said, what for? It's just a flu. <laughs> Why would I bother? So I'm just a realist. I, there are risks of vaccines. There are harms of vaccines. But I will tell you one thing, Robin. I am furiously against the concept of vaccine passports for this yeah. thing. So I may not be too worried you know, about the vaccine itself. It's a bunch of RNA. It's in a lipid capsule. You know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think there's as big a problem as is made out. Maybe the mercury and the heavy metals and aluminium in the older vaccines could be, could be worse than this. I don't have too strong an opinion, but I have a massively strong opinion on the idea that I would be forced to have a medication, right? Based on something that's kind of like a severe flu equivalent. I mean, if it was bubonic plague, I'd entertain the idea. You know, if it was Spanish flu, probably want to be worse than Spanish flu, actually, which is around 100 times worse than this. But, you know, bubonic plague, uh, you know, we, we, we have an emergency. Everyone knows loads of people who died. It's a catastrophe. Maybe. But this, it's insane. Passport? Yeah. The passport is, yeah, that's just clearly about control, control of the world and consolidation of wealth and power. Um, but I'd love for you to compare what we have going on and, and the statistical analysis that you've done to other outbreaks. Like I've heard you discuss, you've, you've mentioned you think it's about twice as lethal as the flu. 
And I, I'd love for you to discuss the comparison to Spanish flu, because I don't know if you know this, but in New England Journal of Medicine, last March 26th, so we're talking really early in the whole thing in America, last March 26th, in New England Journal of Medicine, Tony Fauci said that we should expect for there to be about one-tenth of 1% death rate. Like He knew that. He knew it. Yeah. He said that. I think to cover his butt so that he could always look back and say, no, no, look, look, I said there was going to be one tenth of 1%. So where do you see us with relation to the true risk? What's being told to us about the risk versus the true risk? Where do you see this uh, virus being relative to things like Spanish flu, bubonic plague, the general flu? That's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. I'll try and answer it just for a lay person. And I might stick away from percentages. And sometimes I might talk about uh, numbers per million people. So a million people is obviously a huge amount of people. It's around a quarter of the population of Ireland. You know, it's the whole population of South Dakota or North Dakota. <laughs> so how many people in a million? So basically, the reason Fauci said that is because he may be very evil and, and mendacious and lying and all that. But he's not stupid, actually. It's pretty smart. So he would have looked at Diamond Princess and very quickly realized this is around 0.1%, uh, around one in a thousand or around a thousand in a million people. And they're going to be really aged and they're going to be comorbid. Because you can see that from the Diamond Princess. So he certainly went on the record and said the truth. But I think what happened afterwards was when it, Italy panicked and when the stooges in Imperial College London, who are funded by vaccine foundations to the tune of nearly 200 million, I think, over the last 10 years, when they did the Neil Ferguson modeling, they said it's going to be 10 times bigger than that. It's going to be a catastrophe. And when England brought in lockdowns and everyone brought in lockdowns and America started bringing in lockdowns and the panic exploded, then Fauci realized, wow, this thing has legs. So yeah, it's only going to be around 0.1%. And the average age is going to be around 80. So I, you know, I said that and it was true. But it looks like we're going to be able to do a super duper swine flu crazy thing out of this. And all our buddies, everyone's going to make out like bandits. So they all started talking big numbers. They all, that was... But they, I think they realized, you know, it was almost like a button was hit, like a red button, uh, after they realized panic had started and they said, here we go, guys. That was my impression. So Spanish flu. So we take this and what are the best way to put it? Spanish flu, they guess 50 million people worldwide died. This one is a few million. Okay. But we got way more people in the world now. So Spanish flu is probably around a hundred times worse, but it's, much more important is to think of life years lost. Spanish flu on average killed people in their 30s. Yeah. So if you look at the age, it killed infants and it killed people in their 30s was around the median. And then it killed older people, actually not so bad. Hmm. So the life years lost for Spanish flu are probably around 30 or 50 times bigger than coronavirus. And it killed a lot more people. So you got to multiply those numbers together. So this thing is not even in the same universe as Spanish flu. Rough and tough in terms of life years lost, a fair figure would be 100 to 200 times 
less impact on life years lost. That's huge. Uh, this one is maybe like 57 or 68 flu. It's, but we did nothing. We had Woodstock. We, you know, we, everything went on as normal. But that's a, a, a reasonable comparison. The 57 flu. Most people don't even know about that anymore, you know? So bubonic plague, you know, was talk about 30% of people died versus 0.1. So bubonic plague was at least 300 times worse, at least. And the life years lost for bubonic plague, because it hit all ages, are probably thousands and thousands of times worse than this. This thing, Professor Michael Levitt, and I agree with him, is two or three times a kind of really nasty flu year. Rough and tough. That's what it is. Can't get away from that. That's the numbers. In Ireland, I did the data yesterday, latest data, Ireland is claiming 4,850 people died because they had a positive PCR. In actual fact, Ireland, if you look at the full 2020 and you look at the big spike in April of the COVID epidemic, the spike is around the same as 2017-18 in Ireland, which was a flu spike. It's around the same size. And the overall deaths for the year are slightly less than 2017-18. So 18 was a bad flu year in Ireland. There were articles about the hospitals overrun, people on trolleys, yada, yada. Life went on as normal, though. But this is around the same size. And 2021 in Ireland is going to be again around the same size maybe as 2018. Now, I will say in America, America has severe metabolic health problems. Yeah. And America is one of the worst affected countries. So in America right now, in excess mortality, the only measure you can use, it's probably around 1,300 people per million. So 0.13% after multiple seasons and over a year. So it's pretty high. And many countries, half of Europe is down at only 100 per million or around 0.01. So there are big differences between countries, but the key point is it's not because you lock down or you masked or not. It's the metabolic health of your population, the age profile of your population, the genetics of your population. All the factors that decide how hard you get hit by this virus are not to do with lockdowns. Yeah, lockdowns, I heard you talk about J Japan. You feel like they have some some. They're very different from us in terms of their lifestyle and how, how healthy their elderly are. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, they're, they're uh, elderly. Uh, there's a recent study that the uh, fit elderly or active elderly in Japan, 95% of them were above 30 nanograms in vitamin D, which means excellent metabolic health. So 95% were above 30, which means superb. And, and why is Italy, that? Do they just go outside and we don't or what? Well, you get high vitamin D from multiple things. I always tell people it's not just the sun, but a high vitamin D person, there's multiple reasons why they would be and they're all good. They got a lot of healthy sun. Absolutely. That's one reason you could be high. Uh, you're eating uh, kind of really nutrient dense foods with vitamin D and cod liver oil and, you know, eggs and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's another reason. The other reason is you have good metabolic health. 
because interestingly, vitamin D is a marker for poor metabolic health. So you could get a lot of sun and you could eat vitamin D foods, but you could have really low D because you've got inflammatory disease. So that'll drive your D low. So people who are high, it's also a sign that they are metabolically very healthy. It's a great marker. And uh, definitely inflammatory disease will make it low. So often if you fix inflammatory disease, you can have your D double over a couple of months without changing your sun or your what you eat. So vitamin D is just a beautiful marker and it's turned out for COVID to be an incredible marker. So the studies have shown if you're over 30, you're around 10 times lower likelihood if you get COVID to end up in, in ICU or, or, or mortality, 10 times lower. So lockdown, there's no times lower. It doesn't really have an effect over long periods of time. It all averages out 10 times lower for about 30. But the one just, sorry, last thing I'll say, Robin, is Japan, 95% of the women were over 30. That's like kind of COVID proof. Northern Italy, there was a study where around 80% or so of elderly people were below 12. Now that's deficient, seriously. So you've got nearly everyone above 30 in the safe zone in Japan, in the elderly who are hit by this disease. And they compare in Northern Italy where they got whammed, the vast majority are below, like it's in their boots. Look at that difference. It's chalk and cheese. It's COVID, uh, you know, almost armor versus COVID like dry tinder. Yeah, I mean, no one talks about it. You basically don't get symptoms of COVID if you have optimal vitamin D, right? Lots, lots well, of evidence. Oh, there's mountains of evidence. And again, it's not just because of pills or just because of sun. It's also because it's a marker of you have got great health. Um, now, you got that great health by what you ate and how you lived, but it's a marker. But yeah, it's the case that you may very well get a bad dose. You may be in bed for a day or two. But if you had been below 12 nanogram versus above 30, uh, you could end up in ICU for three weeks or you could end up dead. It's such a huge difference. Uh, it doesn't mean you're, you're proof or bulletproof. It just means the doctors back in April, May, my doctors in America, a whole bunch of them said they've been looking at D. They haven't seen any patients who are up in the 30s or 40 nanogram. None. Absent. You know, a lot of patients. I ran a, a liver detox retreat in Switzerland 10 times over the course of eight years. I ran retreats and in fact, they were totally sold out before we went into the scamdemic and we had to cancel them because of course people were saying, you know, there's a pandemic. We have to shut it. And they wanted their money back. And we were like, eventually it was just like, we can't do this. And now we can't do it because. I can't promote it for next year with the fact that none of us will get on a plane. Most of us won't get on the plane if we're forced to be vaccinated to go to Europe. And so I don't know that I'll ever get to go there again. And unfortunately, I'll probably put that business under. But I was tested there every year for eight years. And then once a year, I get tested here, too. And I have never not been in the optimal range. Um and I would assume I would now you're saying that if you eat healthier, that that helps, too. And I and I do. That's my my jam as I've been teaching people to drink green smoothies their whole life. But I'm also a competitive tennis player. And so I'm out in the sun a lot. Um, this lighting in this room, I don't usually do my podcast in this room, but I don't know why I look like a ghost in here. But 
Um, it's not necessarily good for my skin and all the pre-skin cancers I have from being in the sun for decades, but my vitamin D has always been um, optimal every single time that I've tested it. And when we go to Switzerland, I'm the only one. They, you know, because the clinic doctors tell me what's going on with everyone. They don't have HIPAA laws there or something. I don't know. And um, I'm the only one who has enough vitamin D. And I, I, I wonder if you know, sounds like you know a lot about this. Is it true that people with a lot of extra fat are going to, their fat stores are going to hoard the vitamin D and so they won't necessarily have it available to them? Is that true? Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's not definitive. Now, the problem with people who are fat or insulin resistant, they're going to be low vitamin D for many metabolic reasons, like I mentioned. Yes, it's a fat stored vitamin. So you could say you do store it for the winter in fat cells. But then you could look at fat people. If they have it stored, the body will release it uh, as needed. But yet that doesn't really happen. The the people who are overweight with metabolic issues, you know, have sustained low vitamin D. So I, I don't think there's a definitive answer on that specific one. But I would certainly view it. If you have a lot of extra adipose tissue and you're probably insulin resistant, you're overweight, you're metabolically unhealthy, you're going to have a vitamin D metabolism problem. Okay. And exactly what the mechanisms are, you know, we could probably say they're not tied down fully. But the key thing is, well, how do you fix it? I think that if you were an overweight person, very overweight with visceral fat and very insulin resistant with a bad triglyceride over HDL ratio, high insulin. Okay, classic American modern person. If you fix that by changing your diet, dropped your insulin down, your visceral fat got much smaller in a CT scan, you could still have all the extra adipose tissue, subcutaneous outside fat, but you'd be non-insulin resistant. You'd be insulin sensitive, kind of very fat person. You'd You'd have fixed your D problem. You still be carrying the subcutaneous fat. We have people who are, I'm thinking in pounds, like 400, 500 pound people who are insulin sensitive. You know, they can create enormous fat storage, but they don't create visceral fat and they stay insulin sensitive. So I think the key thing is, what's your metabolic health? Are you low insulin, low blood glucose, good cholesterol ratios, etc.? How could you, um, how could you be five or 600 pounds and be insulin sensitive? Is it like people who are physically active and they work out, but they're just overweight? No. That one is largely genetic. I'll give an example from my, my good friend. uh, Oh, I've got a brain fart there. Dr. Ted Naiman. And we had a discussion in a pod I did with him a few years ago. I drove up to Seattle just for a quick pod. And basically he said he's got Asian Indian uh, kind of patients. And he said every one of them, they pop out a few pounds in the belly region, you know, little tummy, bam, they're diabetic. Type really? Uh, yeah. And that is the problem with Asian extraction and Indian extraction. They don't tend to be able to put on a lot of safe fat, like just keep building storage for the winter. They tend to go more the path of limited fat expansion and then inflammatory visceral fat generation. It's kind of their genetic heritage in general. 
Caucasian. So some people Jenna, are going to hear this and they're going to go all these Caucasian, you know, like um, uh, Western Europeans and and um, Scandinavians. We can get 500 pounds and still be just fine. That don't. That's not what you're saying, right? <laughs> no, I, it's a proof point. We call it in engineering. The vast majority of very overweight people have the problem. They're insulin resistant. But it's just interesting that there's a small percentage, right, that you can call them genetically lucky, that have expanded their fat stores, but they've never developed visceral fat and become insulin resistant. They're called um, MHO, metabolically healthy obese. They're they're a small group. So don't ever think you can be there. No, no. But they are an interesting group because they tell us something about type 2 diabetes and metabolic disease. They tell us it's not specifically driven by excess subcutaneous fat stores. You can be very overweight, although it's a bit rare, but you can be very overweight and still have metabolic health. And likewise, like the Asian patients and like many other people, you can be tofi, thin outside, fat inside, right. where you are not particularly fat, but you're, you've got visceral fat and you've got fat Which in your organs and you're t- diabetic. And the best example on the other extreme, so we said, there's one extreme where you can be very fat and you're metabolically healthy. Very interesting, guys. They tell us something. But there's the other extreme, which I love, because in engineering, you always want both corner cases. The other extreme is people with lipodystrophy, and they have an inability to create subcutaneous fat stores for the winter. And they look ripped. They look really ripped because they can't make the fat. Guess what? They're all diabetic. Really? The skinny so, fat people. Skinny fat tofies. Uh, Robert, Professor Robert uh, Ludwig, uh, or not Ludwig, Lustig, the famous Lustig. sugar guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He had a really interesting, and if people want to visualize it, you got 30% people are obese. And, uh, you know, 70 or 80% of them are metabolically unhealthy. But then the other 70% who are not obese, you've got a big percentage of them, like 40 or 50 are metabolically unhealthy. So ironically, there's more non-obese, metabolically unhealthy people heading for heart attacks and Alzheimer's than there are obese people, just because there's more of them. And it's because of tofies, thin outside, fat inside. We think if we're not fat, that we're fine. But where do you think the myriad heart attacks come in guys and even women in their 50s who are not fat and who don't smoke. Well, if you did the CT scan, you'd see they have visceral fat. So they're not. Yeah. You know. And that's like, and it probably gives them a false sense of security. And everybody thinks, yeah. oh, you can eat anything you want and not gain weight. And, you know, I know lots of people who are thin and they don't gain weight. And maybe even they mm-hmm. want to gain weight and they do eat nothing but garbage, but that's not a good thing, y'all. That's not a good thing. It means their body's also not using nutrients. Yeah. And if they keep measuring, measuring their insulin uh, and their blood glucose and their cholesterol ratios, or especially leptin and adiponectin uh, hormone levels, and if all of those are good and they're eating rubbish, uh, you know, maybe they're getting away with it. But you'll probably find they, they have serious problems with insulin resistance developing by doing that. Uh, and they're not making safe storage subcutaneous adipose tissue, the fat all around the thighs, you know, and around the body and the arms. They're not really making that. So they're ending up driving, you know, 
pathological fat in their organs, but you can't see that. Yeah, but it's it's the scarier kind and you don't have that yeah. visual evidence of it that's motivating you. Like at least the people who are overweight are like motivated. They want to wear their clothes again. They know it's bad for them. They've heard the headlines, but then there's other people who are just as fat, maybe more fat, but you can't see it. Um, okay, so last big question for you. Have you considered that there isn't a novel coronavirus? Do you feel like there's enough evidence that there is? Because all my, all my, the different people that I've interviewed, you know, so I've had sort of the, I haven't had Dr. Kaufman on my show, but I've had Tom Cowan on my show a couple times. Um, and I, and I have a good friend who's one of these people who's been completely awake from the beginning. We share content with each other almost daily. She's a health coach and she is very much convinced that there is no novel virus. I have several friends like this and they're always trying to convince me of it. Del Bigtree has totally put a line in the sand that no, there's a virus. So whichever side of the line you land on, you pursue that information. But if, if there's for sure a virus, cause the way you talk, I get the sense that you believe that there is this specific virus. Why haven't they done Koch's postulates? Why hasn't anybody proven it to us? Do you have anything to say about that? Are you convinced that there's a novel coronavirus? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'd be with I'd be with Dell on this one. So I I don't delve too much into that question because I've I've other things to do that I specialize in, and and that's just not one of them. So I have guys around the world who are top in this field, and they all are aligned, even though they're anti-lockdown, obviously anti those nonsense masks and all the other stuff, but they're top people and they accept that there's a virus. Now, many of them say it's a thousand to one that it was laboratory created gain of function. So there's kind of two conspiracy theories, if you will. One of them is there's no virus. Uh, I don't subscribe to that one at all because I know for 30 years, we have had the technology to be able to almost easily make a virus like this. And I think the second conspiracy is that it's lab created. That's not a conspiracy, I think. It was, I would guess, gain of function laboratory, 30 year old technology. The only reason we didn't use this is because ethically it's forbidden. But we now know that, and we're back to Fauci, we know it's on the record that that work was being done in America up to 14 on yeah. SARS type viruses. And we know that then it was stopped because of ethical concerns and dangers, yeah. obviously. And then it was switched to Wuhan and funded by the NHS or NIH yeah, so in America. It, then, it, then it went from being unethical to being both unethical and illegal. So somehow we take yeah. American money and pay Chinese people to do what is illegal in the United States. It's mind boggling, right? Well, I think technically it was legal to do that at some level. I don't know the law, but... In America, it was knowingly allowed for that to happen once it wasn't on American soil. So I think whether it should be legal is another question. I would say, no, it shouldn't. But I think technically it was legal to do that. And I think that's been accepted almost in mainstream that that occurred. Uh, but no mainstream wants to talk about it because that takes away from the narrative. But, you know, I, that's my, I would go on the basis that the people who are saying it doesn't exist you know, there's, it's like an echo chamber. I'm not saying they're certainly wrong, but it's not something that makes sense to me at all. 
and all the technology I've seen in my best guys, if there's any conspiracy, it's more that, yeah, it does exist, but it was gain-of-function laboratory. And I did a podcast with a guy on that, and he explained there's four features of this virus that are pretty much proven in analysis. A furin cleavage site, you know, we've got um, a bacterial kind of element that shouldn't even be in a virus. <laughs> that That's a complex one. But there's four features that really almost certainly couldn't have occurred in nature. And they're in the virus and they've been analyzed. This nasty little bugger, it, yeah, I, I don't subscribe to the idea it doesn't exist. And we, we've seen, I mean, the hit in April in Europe, I mean, people can't deny a complete, almost out of season, massive impact hit Europe. I mean, there's no denying that a virus hit the populations in these countries. And you can ask what virus was it? I'd say the science would suggest, yeah, it is a nasty pathogen, almost certainly of lab origin. Yeah, I mean, some something very terrible hit New York City. Something very yeah. terrible hit New York City. Something very terrible did hit Wuhan. Uh, you know, you, I don't think the media just fabricated that. Plus, no. you know, like to your point, it, it probably was a gain of function lab, you know, got out of a lab. Um, you know, since that can happen, if they really wanted to do this to us, why wouldn't they just come up with an actual real virus? So I've kind of landed on the same side you have, even though I'm still listening. I'm still 100% mm. listening to the people who are so committed to the idea that there is no virus. They've just been taking all these symptoms that nobody, I mean, for instance, it is definitely true that everybody I talk to, I make a hobby out of asking people, did you know how most elderly people die? Did Are you aware that it's usually a virus or a bacterial infection that gets them in the end when they're these like seniors living in a care facility? Like, just because, they, they, you know, because they didn't put it on the death certificate, died of this. We tested them for all these viruses and they they had this, you know, piece of RNA. Therefore, they died of this virus. So I, I can see that. I can see where if they wanted to, they could probably pull that off by just recategorizing deaths. And, you know, and I was also like, well, what about all these people who say they lost their sense of smell and taste? And they're like, come on, Robin, how many times have you lost your sense of smell and taste when you get a cold? And I'm like, oh, true all the time, 100%, but we didn't talk about it. We didn't make it a media headline. So those things in combination, definitely, you know, when I push back on my friends who land on the side of there is no novel virus and they're just recategorizing deaths and they're just doing what the media has done to us for many, many decades, which is, um, you know, just pull snow jobs on us to for, for specific agendas by the people who really own the media. I'm still listening. I'm still listening to it. I, I lean more towards what your conclusion is, which is there, there is likely a novel virus where, where it came from. I probably agree with you on that too, but I'm still listening, just asking questions and not really, I haven't totally landed. So I know and that's fair enough. And I mean, that's the opposite of cognitive dissonance. I mean, that's being open minded and that's fine. So I go with the balance of probabilities always. What's the mm -hmm. preponderance of the data suggest? And it's never a hundred uh, to zero. I mean, there's always a slight possibility of anything. And I, I know that from complex problem solving, but I just go with the balance. The other thing I suspect is there were a couple of very shady characters uh, pushing the there is no virus thing. A few months ago, I was warned about a few accounts on Twitter that were pushing that story. And when people delved into them, they had connections back to the wrong places. 
And I worry about false flags as well, because we live in a world and we have for a long time where you can feed people kind of conspiracy theories. And if they get to believe it and they run with it and it seems convincing, then you can discredit them later. And you've also Mm. distracted them off down the wrong rabbit hole. Mm. So I'd say we should be acknowledging that something hit the world very unusual, you know, in March last year, the Western world uh, caused a big impact. And in fairness, I think, although they're, they're not testing for flu and there is flu around, um, the evidence from the testing with PCR for, for flu means flu did kind of step back from, I think, this puppy that came out of the lab. And, uh, and, and here we are. But if you think of, you say new virus, the words they used when it came out, my, uh, corporate political brain picked up on some things in March last year. And I was hearing these reports. We're never going back to the old normal after yeah. this. And I said, hold on a minute now. Why do the they media. already know that? Yeah. Why do they already know that? Uh, yeah. Again, no conspiracy theory, but I'm a realist. So I said, okay, there's something behind the scenes here now. And I knew about 2001 swine flu debacle where they tried to hype swine flu and they got all these vaccines made and farmer were in with the WHO and they agreed to take the definition of pandemic down from having to cause serious, massive disruption, death and disease. That was in the definition of pandemic level six. They took it out. So basically you could, once you had a new virus that went all over the place, you could call it a pandemic. They took out the severity part in 2008, just before swine flu. So I knew there's corruption. So when I saw no no going back to old normal, I said, what are these idiots saying? I know they're idiots in the media. I know that. But why are they even... It does, there's something going on there. And sure enough, the rest is history. But I also spotted other things. I mean, the exaggeration that was going on, the lack of discussion of Diamond Princess. It popped up. No one would talk about it. I saw in Boston that in the um, homeless people shelter, several hundred on the East Coast and the West Coast, several hundred people, they were getting 90% positives and, and there was almost no sickness and no death. So stories would pop up and then they disappear. So I just realized the whole engine is moving now and it's all hyping this, you know? So I knew, and I'd say part of that whole engine, the bad guys and lots of international organizations, WEF, you know, there's there's Bill and Melinda Foundation putting money all over the place. Uh, there's UN, you know, plans for control and tracking and passports. All these organizations are extremely powerful. And I think they're influential enough that I always say the big engine driving this madness, in fairness, is political uh, media stupidity and fear mongering and profiteering. And that's in all the countries and they're all copying each other. So they've mm-hmm. gone and spun themselves into a Salem witch trials thing. Mm-hmm. So I think the big engine is not corrupt bodies driving it. The big engine is all of that's madness. But the smaller engine, but very, very important are the worldwide bodies who are setting up everything and guiding the big engine to keep it running. So I think if you went back in time, thought experiment, Einstein used to do them. And I say, okay, go back in time to March 2020, first of March, and simply flick your fingers and what's going to freeze. The WHO and Neil Ferguson and Imperial College London 
and WEF people, World Economic Forum, just pick a bunch of those parties, not, not too many, and just freeze them magically. What would have happened? And I'll tell you what would have happened. None of this. Because there is no way without the WHO guidance on all of these influential bodies that we would have gone the route we went. It's, it's, it's unthinkable. You know, you needed those people and those organizations to set up the tinder for the, for the fire yeah. we, we've lived yeah. through. They probably chose no? Neil Ferguson because he, he's, you know, they're probably someone with more integrity wouldn't have been willing to say 2 million Americans are going to die. But there are people who will say anything, you know, like now we've seen Fauci, he'll say anything. He'll say and do anything that they tell him to, no matter how many people die, no matter how many people could have been saved with something just simple, like getting their vitamin D levels up, uh, getting out in the sunshine, having some very simple over-the-counter drugs available to them. Instead, they were blocking them. But yeah, I think Neil Ferguson was just, he was just up for hire, willing to do what the puppet masters tell him to do. Oh, well, he's fully funded, I think. I think it's something like 70 or 80 or 90 million the college has got from from basically vaccine foundations. So, I mean, these guys are smart and they're all connected and they know it's ultra profitable. Like swine flu, we saw what happened with swine flu. That nearly got carried off, except the swine flu virus was so weak that it just couldn't deliver enough deaths to keep it going. Ran out of steam. But this one's a tough little bugger. And the other thing is, there's, I think, the IHME in America, and they're kind of connected to, uh, so it was certainly Neil Ferguson and Imperial that turned the UK into a nonsense state back in March, April. But, and they did influence America, I think, and the administration. But within America, there's another sleeper cell, I think IHME or some organization a bit like Imperial, and they came out hot on Neil's back with the same 10 times too high predictions. And they were, those predictions were created on American soil and they influenced America from within. And those guys are all connected back to pharmaceutical. So look, all these guys, they may not have a briefcase of cash under their desk. They may not have a plan written out for them explicitly, but all of them know when a, epidemic takes off and it's looking pretty hot. They know what's needed for the important people. You got to rack it up and rack it up. Whatever you do, whatever you say, whenever you're on the media, whatever modeling you do, you know what to do. Always make it sensationalist. Always push the fire. Always feed the fire. And there's hundreds of thousands of those people and bodies around the world that are feeding the fire. That's it. Absolutely. And they have their doubts and lots of them talk to me. I have lots of medical doctors and researchers who talk to me, but they don't speak up because they know they'll lose their job. There's lots and lots of people who would lose their job for saying word one of what you and I are saying right now. Yeah, well, we have a group of 40 doctors in Ireland and it's a small percentage, but they all 100% know the reality of this. And the few of them who are leaders who stood up four or five, yeah, they lost their jobs. Now, a couple of them were close to retirement and they knew they'd, ex- they'd, they'd lose their job, but they could handle it. And then there's younger ones who had to back off a little because, you know, multiple children and they got a career. Uh, but yep. these people are heroes. I mean, the guys I'm dealing with, not just in Ireland, I've got a team of 40 medical and some business people in Ireland. They're heroes. 
And all across the world, we got Pandata in South Africa that's becoming international now. We got the Barrington guys, you know, Great Barrington and the top professors of Oxford. They were with DeSantis in Florida. YouTube took down their panel discussion. But I could go on and on. In the UK, the Heart Group, we've got all these groups of people and they're not America's frontline doctors. They're doing so much. Yeah, all the frontline doctors. We have all these people who are beautiful people who stand for truth and science and ethics. And no matter what way this goes, they will always be right. I hope history proves them right and it's not rewritten by some totalitarian state we end up in. You know, the victor writes history, right? But even, even if the worst happens, they will always have done the right thing and they will always have been correct. And I know that myself. In January this year, I had an enormous propaganda campaign exploded against me. And I was in some mainstream newspapers in England and Ireland. You know, they were careful not to be libelous, but, you know, you can imagine. And I had a whole raft of people with fairly big Twitter accounts attacking me. And I was told in December that was coming and it would be lined up with the vaccine rollout. Because with the vaccine rollout, whatever your feelings about vaccines, the people rolling it out know it's, very important to have a lot of propaganda against lockdown deniers mm-hmm. in January, February. So there was a, an onslaught and people were all contacting me and saying, Ivor, are you all right? And I smiled and I said, I'm completely fine. And the reason is because I know I'm right and I know I'm honorable. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not like I know I write, like a conspiracy theorist can say, I know it. I've been a 30 year problem solver. I eat and drink data right? And the medical and the biochemical. I actually know I'm right. And I have professors coming out of my ears all over the world who also know they're right. The media won't allow them to talk. They're vilified. But it doesn't change the fact that we will always be right for all of history. That's just the way it is. And we fight for the children and the next generation. All these bozos like Fauci and all the people screeching, they're either terrified for their own skins, which is cowardice, right? Or they're deluded and propagandized, which it's not their fault. The media did that. Uh, or or they've got evil intents and they're profiteering or they've got conflicts of interest. So we're talking about everyone who's on the other side. You can't, as an honorable human being, respect them. These are important points. People need to stand up for what's right. And, and that's lost in the modern population. I think everyone's got a head stuck in a phone. You know, they've lost community. They've lost these bonds of solidarity. They've lost their ability to, to perceive risk. The modern people the last 30 years have become so safest that I think they were ripe to be harvested by evil people like Fauci. I agree. I agree. And I, and I was kind of connecting the dots, um, looking at who the virologists and immunologists were, who were really standing out there very publicly and what they seem to have in common, like think Mike Ahill from your, your country, one of the things they that most of them seem to have in common is that they were already retired or they already sold their bio bio um chemistry company not biochemistry company but uh biochemical company what am i trying to think of like they sell drugs or or medical devices or whatever both Dor- Doris Cahill and Mike Hayden have done that but they have been very very loudly articulately they're everywhere speaking up i mean Mike Hayden has said if if any of my colleagues who I went to school with, all these guys there in the whatever the Department of Health is called there in in uh, England and the UK, if any of them 
um, think I'm wrong, please sue me. Like he's literally out there saying, please sue me. And none of them have. He's like, if I'm wrong, saying that all of you are lying to the people and that you are creating this second wave so that you can intentionally shut the United Kingdom down, all this going on. The thing is, most of these people can afford to. And technically, that would be me, too, in that I don't have young children. They're not going to come take my children from me as I speak up about vaccines because my children are all of age now. And so the risks are a little bit lower for me. Have I paid a huge price? I have absolutely paid an enormous price. I'm even kicked off my tennis team here in Utah for speaking up. And these are these are minor things, right? We're going to we're going to take bigger prices than that. Yeah, no, but I wouldn't I wouldn't wouldn't understate them either. I mean, it could, I wouldn't understate them. Yeah, if you lose your job and your salary and you've got a family, that's a catastrophe. But those things you mentioned, like being kicked out of circles where and sports yeah. and tennis, they're extremely hurtful. And I wouldn't underestimate the psychological uh, hurt from that. I wouldn't yeah. trivialize it. I've been kind of ostracized a bit by various groups of friends. But the thing is that, you know, again, I know I'm right, and therefore I don't want those friends. Right. Uh, they are aiding and abetting this madness. Right. And a lot of them are senior enough people like technical, and they actually know I'm right, but they mm-hmm. just don't want to go there, and they'd rather mm-hmm. I stop saying it. They want to keep the head down, the vaccine comes in, and it'll all go away. That's cowardice. Mm-hmm. They are they're mentally, they don't want to go there to... To that the world may be a scarier place than mm-hmm. they than they believed, that there may be very sinister elements here that will progress over the next few years into a world that they do not want for their children. Mm-hmm. They don't. They want it to just go away, and that is cowardice. If you know enough to understand this and uh, have the intellectual curiosity, or if someone like me, who you know towers over you technically, no no arrogance here, but they know it. They know I'm not wrong, and yet they don't want to go there, and they they don't want to talk about it. They shrink away. It's sad, sad, it's, very sad. It's hard. It's hard to look at, but once you do, you really can't turn away. And um, and there are people who I don't know if you work for yourself or how you're able to be as bold as you are, but the people like Nurse Erin, who is a young mm. single mom of three little kids, who did it anyway in New York City as she discovered. You know, because she was in Iraq uh, in the war and she saw that the media was lying. So she was already sort of aware that this happened. And that's probably why she woke up. But she said that she thinks 90 percent of the doctors and nurses in she was in Elmhurst Hospital because she was imported from Florida since we didn't have any mm. medical issues going on down here. But uh, she was imported up to New York and she told the story of how she was running around with her with her hair on fire, calling attorneys, trying to get people involved. She said 90% of the doctors and nurses absolutely knew that they were killing people. They knew that venting people is the wrong thing to do. They knew that the treatments they were giving were wrong, but it was just too rewarding to be paid contract wages of four times what they normally get and mm. to walk out and have huge crowds of strangers cheering for them and wow. signs everywhere that said, you know, our frontline doctors and nurses, we love you so much. It was too tempting. It was too tempting to just do it because everybody's doing it and because you're getting so much praise and you're making so much money. Yeah, but 30 years ago, it wouldn't happen. The people were different. I, I don't know. I, I just think if you transplanted magically, another thought experiment, the people from 40 years ago, 
to now and you still had this same scam being attempted, I don't think it would happen. If you transplanted the media from 30 years ago to today, magically, it couldn't have happened. Yeah. It has taken 20 years of preparation to have the media completely useless and also on the payroll of the big advertisers and infiltrated largely by pharma and by these foundations. Mm -hmm. And similarly for the politicians, you know, most of the politicians we find who are screeching this madness, they're actually on the World Economic Forum website, like they're, they're kind of partners. So mm -hmm. I, I think, I think 20 years have steadily been prepared to pull off a swine flu big yeah. style. 2009 yeah. showed us that the bad characters were lurking yeah. and they tried it and backed off. 10 years later in a nice lab produced pathogen that's much better than swine flu. And it was go. Mm -hmm. It was just project go. And here we I are. Don't, I don't think this is the final one. I think they're backing off right oh. now so that I've heard you say it too. They, I think they've laid the track with this one and changed the laws in all the states and the countries. But um, I think they've laid the track so that when they do the next one in a few years, we're we're done and we're all the wealth and power is consolidated to this merger of private and part, you know, the, the biggest companies in the world merge with the governments of the world. And it's basically the 3000 top stakeholders of the world with all of the wealth and power. That's what they want. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. That's why you and I do what we do is to stop that from happening because we don't want our children in a future like that. But I appreciate everything that you're doing. I always try to tell my guests because every one of them that I invite on my show is, is absolutely courageous. Later today, I'm interviewing Dr. Paul Thomas, who has lost his medical license in the state of Oregon because he not only took in tens of thousands of patients whose parents didn't want to vaccinate, but 15,000 were born into his practice. And then he did a study on the unvaccinated from birth versus the fully vaccinated because he also has fully vaccinated clients. He lets people make their, their own choice, but he believes in, um, he believes in informed consent. And he hmm. found that there's almost a hundred percent. I mean, I haven't interviewed him till today yet, but what I believe that we have learned is that for fully vaccinated children, again, 72 jobs in the United States by the age of 18, uh, 16 different vaccines, but 72 injections, um, almost a hundred percent level of chronic disease for the fully vaccinated. See, everybody needs to remember that there's people like me who my youngest two have no vaccinations whatsoever because the first two were injured, especially the old one, the oldest one who did all of the vaccine vaccines for two years and he just got sicker and sicker and each one took him down. But I hadn't, I hadn't questioned it yet. It just seemed, it, just, it was too foreign to me. I, you know, you don't, you don't just wake up in a day. Right. And so unfortunately it was at the expense of my, my son's health, but, yeah, so um, I'm going to interview him, and he has figured out that the kids, his 15,000 patients who were born into his practice and have never had a vaccine, they're really, really healthy. And the the world the world doesn't want that information out there. The powers in the world don't want the information out there, so they literally took his medical license. And he's so brave that he's known this is going to it was coming for years, and he did it anyway. So. Everybody who comes on my show is, as as far as I'm concerned, a great international hero, and you included. So, um, so thank you so much for everything you're doing to speak up. I know it's it's uh, it's it's intense, and um, I'd love for you to just tell Green Smoothie Girl followers and followers of this of the Vibe Show where they can follow you because you have a podcast too. Do you not? 
oh yeah, I have the Fat Emperor podcast. But I always say to people, including Green Smoothie Guys, uh, great to be here. But uh, if you Google or search my name, Ivor Cummins, the first page will show my Twitter, uh, which I'm big on, uh, my YouTube. And the other key thing is Odyssey and BitChute. I've ported across because I have strikes from YouTube now for just just discussing statistical data, basically. How um, dare you? <laughs> how, how dare I talk about facts and things like that? They're so dangerous. And, uh, but, but that's it. And, um, you know, YouTube is probably my big one. Uh, so I'm trying to guard it at the moment and not get more strikes because, you know, I, it really helps to share and I have 175,000 subscribers. It's a significant kind of listenership. And, uh, yeah. And I'm supported by Patreon and PayPal that I put at the end of each video or the video description. And, uh, big thanks to the guys out there who are basically keeping me going my five kids and my family to enable me to fight this war. Good. Well, everyone donate if you can get, you know, even if you're giving 10 bucks a month to people like to Ivor Cummins to, um, I've never asked for money, but if I ever run out of money and can't pay my staff guys, I'll hit you up. But I've never hit you up before, but the people who are, it's because they're giving up opportunity costs. They're giving up other ways they could be making a, a living so that they can, be part of the fight, the the very difficult fight of um of trying to regain our children's freedom. So I give to Dell Bigtree every month and Bobby Kennedy every month, keep their fight going. So consider signing up, joining uh Ivor Cummins on uh Twitter and his podcast, The Fat Emperor. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Robin. Delightful to talk to you and we'll catch you later and see how this thing is going maybe in a couple of months. 